Good morning, Shabbat Shalom, and welcome to United Israel World Union. This is our Sabbath morning scripture study coming to you live from St. Francisville, Louisiana. Thank you so much for joining us on this beautiful Sabbath morning. Uh, I did want to remind people that we are approaching something quite significant on the Hebrew calendar, uh, and that something significant is a date. And a lot of people at this time of year are thinking about Hanukkah, uh, which begins uh, this week as well. But I'm talking about something that happens beginning at sundown tonight, and it is in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, James Tabor is the one that showed me this a long time ago. It has since been talked about each year. Uh, but if you look in the prophet Haggai, and we're going to start with that this morning just to kind of set things off uh, for this time of year. Uh, the prophet Haggai in chapter 2. And what I want to do is I just want to show you that <clears throat> this particular date, sundown this evening, begins, marks the ninth month, the 24th day of the month. And so in Haggai chapter 2, just so you can look at these later, uh, there are several references. The first is in verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month, second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai and so forth. So it's interesting, by the way, to read these prophecies that took place on this day or on this date uh, long ago in the time of Haggai. And then you'll also notice that uh, verse 18, take note. From this day forward, from the 24th day of the ninth month. Uh, then if you look down at the end of verse 19, for from this day on, I will send blessings. Or some translations are closer to the literal. From this day forward, I will bless you. So the idea is that this particular time of year, uh, according to the prophet Haggai, this is the only date that specifically is tied with blessing. So uh, there'll be more about that later this weekend. I plan to say some more things on that. I know that Betty uh, Given wrote a nice piece for the bulletin this week, which is up on our website. So please take the time and check that out as well. One other thing that I wanted to say to this group before I get started in the class today some of you are on Facebook, others not. Some of you have a problem with Mark Zuckerberg, and that's between you and Mark. But those who do use Facebook that are members of the Facebook group for United Israel, you'll notice that I'm beginning to put some constraints on that group. And I want you to understand, hearing it from me, the main purpose of this is that the group was set up for people like you, who participate in United Israel. We, over time, have allowed other people in, and, and we thought, you know, I mean, this person has a star David on their Facebook profile. They'll probably be okay. You start letting people in for various reasons, and then ultimately what you have is a group with many hundreds of people, some of which, a large portion of which, have no idea what United Israel is all about, so they really don't connect with us and uh, so I'm going to start weeding that down. Think of the story in the Bible, you know. Uh, let's weed these troops down to a smaller group. 
And so I'll be doing that over the next couple of weeks, and I'll be asking for a little bit of help on that. So bear with me. And one other thing is that you'll notice on that Facebook group, uh, there is a feature for prayers. And I activated that feature, and what it allows, whenever you do a post on the Facebook group, you can identify by clicking the two little hands like this. It's very simple. Uh, that means this is a prayer, and you post it, and it automatically goes to the prayer section. People generally post a prayer need, and it gets lost in the shuffle. This puts them all under one tab. And the interesting thing is that when you post something, like if I post a need, when John or Lyndon or someone prays about it, they click, I prayed. I mean, this is kind of high-tech prayer stuff. You know, they, I'm sure that in biblical times, they wish they would have had this. But then you can even select to be notified, reminded every morning to pray for whoever it is. So anyway, nice features, prayer in the modern age. How about that? Thank you very much. Okay, this class today is class number 10 in our ongoing series, The Pentateuch, A New Look. Class number 10, we're working through the annual cycle of readings from the five books, and, uh, and this is number 10. Last week, we completed what I called uh, one of the major sections, the ninth of 10 sections in Genesis that many people miss. In the Hebrew, the sections are identified by the opening phrase, Ele toledot, these are the bringings forth. Some people say, some translations say, these are the generations. Tabor's translation said, these are the bringings forth, and then that particular section uh, goes for however long it is, and the, the scribe, the compiler, finishes it up. So they're neatly arranged. Well, today, last week we finished Eli Toledot Isaac. This week we begin a new one, and it's called Eli Toledot Jacob. Now, this one will carry us through the end of Genesis. So the material contained in Eli Toledot Yaakov, or I mean uh, uh, Yaakov, will run from Genesis 37, all the way until the end of chapter 50. This is the last section according to the arrangement of the ancient scribes. Now, even though Jacob does play a significant part in this book, book let's call it book 10 of Genesis, even though Jacob plays a big part in it, he's not the main focus. We started hearing about Jacob long ago, um, but he's not the main character anymore. Our focus is now shifted. Our focus is shifted to someone else. Now, that's not unusual the way that this book was put together. Remember, the story of Abraham was called Ele Toledot Terak. It's named for his father, and then we spend the whole book of Ele Toledot Tarak, these are the generations of the bringing forth of Tarak. We spend the whole book talking about Abram, Abraham. Uh, and so it is even when you get into the book of Isaac, Ele Toledot Isaac, the majority of it is about his boys, primarily uh, Jacob. So now, even though the book is called These Are the Generations of Jacob, we're talking about 
Joseph, and we'll see that as we work through. So I'm going to begin today by framing up the book, this 10th book in Genesis. So go with me, first of all, this morning to Genesis chapter 37, Genesis chapter 37 and verse 1 and 2. Genesis 37, 1 and 2, And Jacob dwelt in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brethren, and he was a lad with the sons of Bilhah and with the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought the bad report of them unto their father. So it starts off, these are the generations of Jacob, but then the next word is Joseph. So let me say it like this. These are the generations of Jacob, Joseph. You can almost underline that because everything after this is going to be focused on Joseph and everybody else is sort of a supporting role. Story focus shifts. Now go with me to the close of the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 50 and verse 26. And it says, So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. So one of the things that's interesting to me about these ancient scribes and these books within the book of Genesis is they're perfectly structured. You get the introduction, these are the generation, Joseph, and then it ends with his death. It's a perfect composition, and we're going to be pulling this apart. Now, we know Joseph already. We were introduced to Joseph earlier in the story, but he wasn't the focus then. And you can look, go to Genesis chapter 30, Genesis chapter 30 and verse 24. This is where we first meet uh, Joseph. And she called his name, let's back up to verse 23, 22, I'll get it right in a minute. And God remembered Rachel, and God hearkened to her and opened her womb. And she conceived and bare a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, Jehovah, add to me another son. She's already praying for the next son, by the way. And, uh, but, but this idea, this introduction to Joseph took place, you know, seven chapters ago. Hey, it wasn't a focus in. Now, when we talk about Joseph, get this, we're talking about the favored son of the favored wife. Favored is the word that's going to occur when we're talking about Joseph. Now, we don't know early on, it doesn't say it plainly, Joseph is our favorite, but it becomes obvious. Remember last week when I talked about as they're approaching Esau, the way that they arranged the family, you have the handmaids and their kids, and then you have Leah and her kids, and then all the way at the back, you have Rachel and Joseph because they're the favorite. And like I said last week, guess who knows it? Everybody in the family knows it. And, uh, and if you have a favored child, everyone in the family will know that too. Keep that in mind. This is a good family lesson that we have here. Uh, people, though, have long noted the beauty and coherence of the material 
about Joseph. Let's call it the Joseph saga, the, this story of Joseph. I remember even as a little boy, these were some of my favorite stories. Even now, when I pick up a children's Bible, I'll flip to the Joseph stories. And you know what I love to see? Because I know this is a good story. This is the one you tell. Uh, Joseph is wearing what? A multicolored, everybody knows, the, the coat of many colors. That's how you know you got to the good stuff in Genesis. When you get to the coat of many colors, Joseph, the story, it stands apart. This Joseph saga stands apart from all the previous material that we encountered in Genesis thus far. And I will say this from all ancient literature. It is among the most moving material of anything recorded in antiquity. Beautiful. Even to this day, it's a, it's a beautiful story. It's somewhere, it's somewhere, it's called a novella by scholars. A lot of people call this material from Genesis 37 through chapter 50 as a novella. And, and what is that? It's sort of a, uh, it's a genre. It's kind of between a short story and a novel. But it's a beautiful story. It, the plot carries you along, and you, if, even if you know the story, you can't wait. You know, I want to turn the page and see what happens. It's a page-turner. It's an ancient page-turner. It's a well-crafted plot. Like when, if you read it like you've never read it before, or imagine the first time you read this story, and you see Joseph's favored status, and then uh, everybody knows it, and they hate him for it, and, and then, oh, no, he's kidnapped. And then, you know, you just follow it along, and then, and then he's favored, and then he goes to jail, and he's favored, and it's just a gripping story, and that's one of the things that attracts people to it to this day. Now, I'm talking about the beauty and the artistry and the cohesiveness and the coherence of the story and how it all makes sense. We still can see traces within even the Joseph material of different sources that these ancient scribes pulled from. We can still see some of the sources in this. Uh, but even though we have multiple sources, the material still fits nicely, and that's one of the things that we'll look at. Center stage is Joseph. Now, I want you to think about uh, I'm going to be bringing this up. I want you to imagine this being acted out on a play or in a play on a stage because that's the best way to do this. In fact, people make Bible movies and so forth, and, and there could be a very good play on Broadway that I don't know about, but I could imagine being a director and putting this story on the big stage not on a screen. I, th this is fitting for a stage because I want to see the curtains close and the curtains open. I want to see the characters. I want to feel it. I want to see the costume changes because these are important parts of the story. Now, uh, Joseph is not only the central figure in this stage play that we're watching, but he's central in another way. He is uh, centrally placed in the family between a doting father who loves him and the brothers who don't love him. He's dead center. 
He is center stage on the play, but he's also in the middle of something that we're supposed to pick up on right away, and you can't miss it. This is uh, one of those powerful things. So you have Jacob, Joseph, and the boys. Now, theologically, the Joseph material makes a shift as well. When we hit the Joseph material, something changes. And, and you're going to know this when I say it. Some of you already know. Um, but what you don't see is as important as what you do see. How many angels do we meet in the Joseph saga? How many encounters with the divine do we have? And the word of the Lord appeared unto Abram. And the word of the Lord came to Isaac. And Jacob, uh, God came to Jacob and so forth. You know, you, do you see any of that in the Joseph story? It's something that's meant, it's intended. Like when you read it, you think, well, this is odd. It's, it's different. Theologically, it's different. Um, now, that doesn't mean that God's not present in the life of Joseph orchestrating events. That's clear. But what it does mean is that it's a different method. That's not a method that we're not familiar with, but rather than these personal appearances, what we have is dreams. Dreams, dreams take up the main way that God is orchestrating things in this particular Joseph saga. Now, it's not the first time that we've encountered dreams. Remember in Genesis 20, Avi Melech, he's a, a foreigner even, but he has, he has dreams too. God talks to him in dreams. Uh, one of my favorites, go to Genesis 28 just to set the stage for this because dreams play a very important part uh, in the story of Joseph. Um, if you look at <clears throat> verse 11 of chapter 28, this is about Jacob. And he, Jacob, lighted upon a certain place and tarried there all night because the sun was set. And he took one of the stones of the place, placed it under his head, and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, a, a ladder set up on the earth, the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God ascending and descending, and behold, Jehovah stood above it and said, I am Jehovah, the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac, the land whereon you lie, to thee I will give it, and to thy seed, and thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west, and to the east, and to the north, and the south, and in thee and in thy seed all the families of the earth will be blessed. And behold, I'm with thee and will keep you wherever, whithersoever thou goest and will bring you again unto this land, for I will not leave you until I have done that which I have spoken to you. Years ago, I taught a class called um, uh, The Dream of the Fathers. And one of the things that I find significant is the miracle of Israel, not only biblical Israel, but even modern-day Israel, the miracle that is the state of Israel goes back to a dream. You know, you think about that. God told this dream to Jacob, and it grew into the fulfillment of the dream. Remember, Herzl famously said, if you will it, it is not a dream. In other words, put action 
to the dream. And of course, in Jeremiah, we have the story of God's dream, a title of one of my favorite Tabor classes. Okay, so the plan is based on a dream. How about that? So when we get into the Joseph saga, the Joseph narratives, we're now focused on dreams, dreams, and more dreams. So we're going to be looking for dreams and how the plan of God is carried along on the sleeping slumber of the people to whom he's speaking. Now, here's something else you need to think about and watch for as we work through the narrative. Remember, this is a stage in front of you. And on the stage, the curtains open up and you're going to notice the costumes. You're going to notice the garments. Garments is a big, big deal in the Joseph narrative. And it's not just in, in Joseph. It goes back, as I'm going to show. We're going to connect some of these things as we work through. But it's like a masterful play in my mind where the actors or the characters, the real people, uh, but in my play, they change costumes. And you have to watch for that. And why do you have to watch for that? Because the person who compiled this is making a point. You, he wants you to say, oh, look, that's Joe. Look, he's wearing a colored coat or whatever. Oh, look, it's this garment. Oh, it's, it's one of the main focal points as we work through. So these elements are going to work uh, not only internally with the Joseph saga, with the narrative that we're working in, but it's going to connect us to other points in the story, biblical stories that we often would have missed the connection between the two if the garment hadn't caught our attention. So that's why I'm telling you to pay attention to those kind of things. The life of Joseph will be shown as we work through the material to connect in ways to the life of his fathers. Connecting, uh, it's like connecting the dots or, or sometimes even bringing closure to another story. But not only do they work backwards in the biblical narrative, we're going to see stories about these garments, for instance, that look forward into much later biblical material. And you'll say, I never knew that was a connection. But the biblical writers did. So we're going to show you some of those things that the writers sort of encoded into the text to make us connect. Remember what we always say, from the words, in connection with the words, and on the basis of the words. You have to connect the words. Stage is set for the Joseph saga now. When we read Genesis 37, go back to Genesis 37, 1 and 2. It kicks it off just like this. I'm going to read it again. And Jacob dwelt in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brethren, and he was a lad with the sons of Bilhah, with the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought the evil report of them unto their father. Now, let me take just a second. He's 17, he's tending the flock, and he's not with all the boys. So the first thing we need to pay attention to is what is the text telling us? Who's, like, picture on the stage? Who's there with him? It's Joseph. He's a kid. He's the, the baby, basically. He's 17. 
And then he's, it says specifically the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah. Not all the children of Israel. Is Judah there? Nope. Is Levi there? No, he's not. What about Reuben? Is he there? No, sir. Let's see who's there. Just so you remember, go back to Genesis chapter 30 and verse 1. Uh, in Rachel, Genesis 31, when Rachel saw that she bare Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister, and she said to Jacob, give me children or else I die. Remember, Rachel does that like Rebecca. Uh, and Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, am I in God's stead who, is withheld, who has withheld from thee the fruit of the womb? And she said, behold, my maid Bilhah, go in unto her that she may bear upon my knees, and I also may obtain children by her. And she gave him Bilhah, her handmaid, to wife, and Jacob went in unto her. And Bilhah conceived, and she bare Jacob a son. And Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and has given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. Then Bilhah, Rachel's handmaid, conceived again and bare Jacob a second son. And Rachel said, with a mighty wrestling, have I wrestled with my sister and I've prevailed. And she called his name Naphtali. So when Leah saw that she had left off bearing, she took Zilpah. So now the other sister said, well, it worked for her. So she gave Jacob her handmaid and then uh, as, as wife. Verse 10, and Zilpah, Leah's handmaid, bare Jacob a son. And Leah said, fortunate. And she called him Gad. And Zilpah, Leah's handmaid, bare Jacob a second son. And Leah said, happy am I, for the daughters will call me happy. And she called his name Asher. So here we go. We need to understand that we've got Dan and Naphtali, which are Bilhah's boys, and uh, that's probably what they were called, Bilhah's boys. And then she, we had uh, Zilpah's boys, Gad and Asher. So you've got these five, and they're together. Now, Joseph is probably a good bit younger than them, because we still, before you get to Joseph after uh, Dan and Naphtali and Gad and Asher, you still have uh, Issachar and Zebulun before Joseph is even born. So he, these, are, these are grown men. I think they're, I mean, I don't know. We don't have a tight chronology here. But they're older, okay? And Joseph takes a bad report about Bilhah and Zilpah's boys, and he rats them out is what we say. Now, I've told this story before, but I'll briefly touch it because it's a life lesson I remember watching unfold at my dinner table. Years ago, Toby, you know, my youngest son's name is Toby Tobias, and uh, he's, uh, he's the youngest one. And uh, the other kids call Toby uh, precious, you see, because you know how sometimes that younger one is favored. And, of course, you know, he's not in my mind, but they, they still think he's precious. You know? uh, he, by the way, he's 20. He turns 20 this week. So uh, he once was little bitty, you know. Well, they're sitting around the table, and Toby was young. I think he might have been seven or eight. And so Bridget said, or I said, what happened at school today? And we're going around the table, and we're talking. And, and Toby said, I got to keep names for the teacher. And I'll never forget Zach and Seth. You're not allowed to put your elbows on the table, but I almost remember them doing like this. And they're looking at him like, we got to hear this. 
and Toby told that when the teacher got ready to leave, he's so sweet, he gets the, the marker and she said, just write down anybody that's bad. And both boys are staring at him. And Zach said, Zach was the older, uh, he's seven years older or whatever, and he looked at him and he said, did you write any names down? And he said, a lot. And I remember both of them at the same time, they gave him a good lesson about you ought to you be very careful about what you write down even when the teacher asks you to. And he said, she told me what to do and she's my, and they said, yeah, but you don't understand, you are going to get thumped on the playground is what's going to happen. They're going to beat you to death. So, but I just let that unfold because it was a valuable lesson. All right, well, Joseph didn't have that lesson. Joseph took names for daddy. And I don't know if Jacob said, look, keep an eye on the boys, keep an eye on those boys and let me know if any of them do anything wrong. And he, they went back and told on them for smoking or whatever they were doing. So when that comes in, you can imagine that that instigated some hate. They were mad. Look at verse 3 of chapter 37. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 37 and verse 3. Uh, now, Israel loved Joseph more than all his other children. Um, let's see. Yeah, so this is that. I was, let me put it this way. The telling on them was not enough to instigate the hate at the level we're about to show. Now get this. Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was a son of his old age. And it says he made him a coat of many colors. So not only is he marked for his actions, but he's sporting around like a peacock in this beautiful coat. And imagine what that does because look at verse 4. Uh, and his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, and they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. So it, it's, that's a good translation, actually. They, they Not only did they hate him, but they couldn't even fake it. They couldn't even speak nicely to him. They, this is how bad this is. Now, I want to talk just a minute about this coat of many colors. Even though that's become part of our culture and we, we have associated it with this beautiful coat that I've described, and if I did a play, I would have it you know, bright and colorful. But we really don't know if it was a coat of many colors. Hate to ruin that for you. Uh, because it's, in Hebrew, um, it's a ketanet uh, pasim. It, it means, uh, it basically is understood to mean a long-sleeved tunic. Now, that doesn't mean it's not colored. I don't know. But it, the word colored is not really mentioned in the Hebrew, nor is it um, really uh, hinted at even. But it's stuck now. Even translation, most translations, even an academic translation will say, uh, it doesn't say colored, but we're keeping that because it's become part of our culture, right? So, again, it's just part of it. But it's a long sleeve tunic. It's no doubt special. It's no doubt beautiful. And it clearly represents Jacob's love and devotion for precious Joseph. And the boys don't like it. Now, 
I want to point out, because we're doing connecting words with words and phrases, I want you to know that this phrase in Hebrew uh, that's translated coat of many colors is used in one other place in the Bible only. But it is. That exact phrase is used. You know where it's at? Connecting words with words. Go with me to 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel uh, 13, and verse 18. <clears throat> and she had a garment of diverse colors upon her, for with such robes were the king's daughters that were virgins appareled. Then his servant brought her out and bolted the door after her. This is talking about Tamar. Remember the story of Tamar and the, the tragedy that befalls the house of David that involves Tamar? She's, she's raped. And, and one of the things that, that we get as an overarching theme is that uh, if you, you take out the specifics, what you have is there's violence against someone in our focal point uh, and it, it's associated with this coat. So just like she suffers at the hands of a brother because of this coat, so does Joseph in our story. Uh, it certainly has something to do with it. So abuse at the hands of brothers, coat of many colors, coat not uh, pasim. Now go back with me to Genesis 37. Genesis 37. And... <clears throat> We're not going to read the entire portion today, um, but, but we just want to make it a, a very clear point that in 37, after introducing him as the favored son with the favored coat, uh, the mark of the identifying feature that he's daddy's favorite, uh, then the brothers hate him. Now, if that's not enough, if it's not already enough, now Joseph has dreams. Joseph has a couple of dreams, and he doesn't just keep them to himself. He tells the dreams. So he has two dreams, and by the way, this is the first of three sets of dreams that carry us through the Joseph saga. We have two dreams of Joseph. We have two dreams of uh, court officials for Pharaoh and two dreams of Pharaoh, so we're going to get to all that. But this is the first set. They belong to Joseph. He has them. He's clearly, he has a gift, but it's like he doesn't know how to use it yet or he doesn't use it wisely. So his dreams uh, involve, the, the first one is about the, the sheaves standing up. Look at chapter 37, verse 5. Joseph dreamed a dream and he told it to his brothers. And they hated him yet the more. They already hate him. You say, well, why did they hate him? Listen to the dream. I know you know this. He said unto them, hey, guys, listen up. This is the dream which I have dreamed. That's not literal Hebrew, but it's pretty close. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves came around it and made obeisance to my sheaf. Now, how do you think that went over? And his, brother, uh, his brethren said unto him, Shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? 
and they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words. Hatred's building. It's building, and the writer wants us to see that. Second dream. Not only does he tell his brothers this one, but he also tells his father. Look at verse 9. He dreamed yet another dream and told it to his brethren and said, Behold, I've dreamed yet a dream, and behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars made obeisance to me. You know, there's a theme in Joseph's dreams. The whole family's going to bow to me. Doesn't go over well. And he told it to his father and to his brethren, Notice his father's included this. And his father rebuked him and said unto him, What is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brethren indeed come to bow ourselves to thee to the earth? And his brethren envied him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now I want to bring something up. Um, I know people have noticed this before, but the dream, uh, the sun and the moon, and the father and the mother are both in included in the dream of doing obeisance to Joseph. And then when the father rebukes him, he said, shall I and your mother bow down? Now, a lot of people read right over that, but there's a problem there. What's the problem? His mother's dead, at least as far as we know. If this is chronological, in other words, if he has this dream after the death of Rachel, it's really bizarre. And so the rabbis and other scholars have looked at this and they said, There's one, here's one view. They said, well, it's prophetic. You know, it's like his mother, she's not really alive anymore. But I think it makes sense to propose to you that a strong possibility is that this event actually occurred before his mother died, uh, this particular dream. Now, some might not agree with that, but we've already shown that chronologically things are not always laid in, because these are ancient sources. So it doesn't have to be, I think, that his mother is still alive when he has this dream, eh, for what it's worth. Uh, but um, uh, that's something that is up to you. Some people want to look for a more mystical meaning there, uh, and that's possible, I guess. But sticking strictly with the text, it makes more logical sense to say otherwise. These dreams about the family bowing down um, will come to pass, will come to pass, and, and we're going to look at that. We're also going to bring back some things about Rachel uh, that come into the story later that uh, I don't connect with this same example that we just did, but stay tuned. That's something else. So the dreams will come to pass, and there will be a bowing down, uh, and it's interesting that the bowing down occurs in the same order as the dream revelation, meaning he first told the first dream to his brother, then to his father. And when the bowing down takes place, brothers bow down first. That's in Genesis chapter 42, verse 6, and then the father will bow uh, in chapter 47, verse 31, later, but it's in the same order. So it's like as he revealed it to him, you're going to bow too, and you're going to bow as well. The brothers are full of hate and jealousy, and the father sends them. This is, you know, when I look at this, I think about You have to, as a parent, you have to watch for this kind of stuff closely. I don't think they hid it. 
but he sends Joseph to go check on the boys. Now, uh, when he says, when he calls Jake, when he calls Joseph, Jacob calls Joseph, uh, you know, my son, I need you to do something. He says, Hineni, here am I, behold I. It reminds me of the willingness uh, that we see in Joseph matches what we saw in Isaac when Abram is, Abraham is bringing Isaac to Moriah because the same response, and it's a typical response in biblical Hebrew, but throughout Genesis 22, 22.1, 22.7, 22.11, when God called, when uh, Jacob uh, talks to, when Abraham talks to Isaac, he says, Come, my son, and what does Isaac say? Hanani, Hanani, Hanani. Then you get to Joseph, he's willing as well. Behold, here I am, let's do it. So he goes. Now, I don't have the map up this week, but I want you to look at a map. They're in Hebron. You can look at 37 verse 14, and it tells you they're in Hebron. The family is in Hebron. But they're shepherding at Shechem. Now, what's significant about Shechem? The family is probably not welcome at Shechem. Remember the massacre? I mean, Simeon and Levi, from what we just read last week, launched an all-out bloodbath on the people of Shechem. And, and when they left, everybody around there was afraid of them, and now the, here they go. They're going to go keep the flock at Shechem. So Joseph, not only, now think about this, is Joseph, what if Joseph is recognized when Jacob sends him to go check on the boys? At least the boys, they might be, uh, the, the neighboring people in the area might be scared. You put 10 or 11 of those sons of Israel together and they might not bother them, but you're going to send one by himself? Anyway, this just, I, I think about this when I imagine Joseph walking along and, man, scary stuff. Joseph is there. He's looking. He's trying to find his brothers, and he meets this mysterious man in the field. And the man tells him, uh, I do know where the boys are. They went towards Dotan, uh, towards Dotan. So that's where he heads. Now look at. Uh, verse 19, chapter 37, verse 19. <clears throat> Look at verse 18. Let's start there. Uh, and they saw him afar off. Uh, and before he came near unto them, they conspired against him to slay him. So he's coming up the road, and the boys see, no doubt he's wearing that nice jacket daddy made him. And, and the boys see him coming. And notice what they say. Verse 19, and they said one to another, Behold, this dreamer comes. Behold, the dreamer comes. Come now, therefore, and let us slay him and cast him into one of the pits, and we will say an evil beast has devoured him, and we'll see what becomes of his dreams. Now, that's hate. They want to kill him. And we don't know which brothers said this. Could be the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. We don't know that. We assume we only know of two that didn't say it. Now, how do we know that? We know it wasn't Reuben 
And we know it wasn't Judah because both of them are going to try to step up with an alternative uh, to keep the boy alive. But we do know that um, we do know that this was the plan. So we have two plans to save him. Reuben's plan is in Genesis 37, 21 and 22, and Judah's plan is 37, chapter 37, verse 26 and 27. Judah's plan wins out. So what Judah comes up with is, let's sell him, not hurt him. Let's just sell him. That'd get him out of our hair. Uh, he's still alive. We won't bring this guilt upon us, but we can get him, you know, he's gone either way. Now, if you look at, now I have a marked in this Bible, so I want to go, if you look at 37, I want to look at <clears throat> together with you the interesting thing about this text. Uh, verse 25 of Genesis 37. They sat down to a meal. Looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Okay, remember that. Who's coming? Ishmaelites. And they're bringing some uh, stuff on their camels. And verse 27, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. All right. And then verse 28, when Midianite traders passed by, they pulled Joseph up out of the pit. They sold Joseph for 20 pieces of silver to the Ishmaelites. So you have to imagine. Now, how do you picture this? Is it Ishmaelites are coming and just so happens that some Midianites show up first and pull him out of the pit and say, we're going to make some money off this deal and we're going to sell him to the Ishmaelites because that's the way that reads. Wait a minute. Now, look down at verse uh, 36. The Midianites, meanwhile, sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, a courtier of Pharaoh and his chief steward. Wait a minute. I thought the Midianites sold him to the Ishmaelites now, this says that the Midianites sold him. Maybe they went with the Ishmaelites. Huh. Now, go to chapter 39. Now, wait, wait, wait. You have to read that again. Verse 36. The Midianites, meanwhile, sold him in Egypt to Potiphar. Midianites, remember that. Midianites sold, Midianites sold. 39.1. When Joseph was taken down to Egypt... A certain Egyptian, Potiphar, court of courtier of Pharaoh, and his chief steward bought him from the Ishmaelites who brought him there. Okay, so we have a question. Is it the Ishmaelites, the Midianites, one, one verse actually says the Midianites, uh, in, in the end of 37, it's the Midianites. You get to 39, it's the Ishmaelites. So scholars began looking at that, and they said, you know, it could be, I'm just giving you this as a bonus, it could be that we have two ancient sources. And one of the ancient sources was the story, here's the bottom line, Joseph was taken into to Egypt and sold there as a slave. And it was one of these desert groups. And you say, well, who was it? And one ancient source said it was the Midianites. Are you sure about that? Absolutely, it was the Midianites. What about you? And the other source said, no, it was Ishmaelites. Okay. Now, but, but, go with me to the book of Judges. 
I don't know how many of the scholars have considered this. Judges chapter 8, <clears throat> and I'm not giving you the whole context. You have to read that on your own time. Verse 22, Judges 8, 22. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you, your son, your grandson as well, for you have saved us from the Midianites. But Gideon replied, I will not rule over you myself, nor shall my son rule over you. Jehovah alone shall rule over you. And Gideon said to them, I have a request to make of you. Each of you give me your earring. He received his booty. Uh, they had golden earrings, for they were Ishmaelites. You have Ishmaelites and Midianites. Now listen to the footnote. This is in the Jewish study Bible. I just saw this this week while I was studying. The substitution of Ishmaelites who were descendants of Hagar for Midianites who were descendants of Keturah also appears in the Joseph story, which we just pointed out. The author thereby indicates a relationship between them. Alternatively, the term Ishmaelites may be a generic designation for nomadic traders and not a mark of ethnic identity. So, it's not so much of a problem, even though you have separate sources. What this footnote is saying is interesting. And by the way, I've looked at this on like the Torah.com and looked up academic articles. There's, there's a little bit of, of question there. Are the Ishmaelites also the Midianites? Could one be called one? Now, you remember what I say about the Midianites. I associate it with desert dwellers. It's like Bedouin. In our modern world, we see Bedouin. And uh, these are people in the desert. So the Midianites, I believe, are people, men from the desert. Okay. Meanwhile, Joseph is being taken off to slavery. Now, this is the way you imagine the play. Joseph is going off with these desert traders and the curtain closes. You with me in the play? And then it opens up. The boys are sitting around. And they've come up with the plan. They're going to take the coat that they've removed from Jacob and they're going to dip it in blood, uh, the blood of a kid. Now, I want you to think garments. We had a kid and a garment used in the story of Jacob's deception of his father as well. Here it is again. It's, it's not... Exact, but the story, it's almost like this is going to turn into another example for Jacob of you reap what you sow. You used a garment and a kid to deceive your father. Now your boys are going to use a garment and a kid to deceive you. Now, a lot of people miss this, but it's there. It's right there, hidden in plain sight. Now, look at verse 35, <clears throat> chapter 37, verse 35. Let me, I might need to read a little bit more than that. Uh, look at 29. Let's back it up. Reuben returned to the pit, and behold, Joseph was not in the pit. He rent his clothes. He returned to his brethren. The child is not, and I, where shall I go? Remember, he's got this on his back, too. He's already stolen his, or he slept with his father's um, handmaid. So he's trying desperately. He wants to be the hero here and save Joseph because he's the oldest too. 
So he doesn't need his dad to say, you took Bilhah and slept with her, and now you can't even take care of your little brother? So he comes, he wants to, to save him desperately. All right. <clears throat> and they took Joseph's coat, killed a he-goat, dipped the coat in blood. They sent the coat of many colors, and they brought it to their father and said, this we have found. Know now whether it is your son's coat or not. And he knew it. And he said, it is my son's coat. An evil beast has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. And Jacob rent his clothes and put sackcloth on his loins, mourned for his days many days, mourned for his son many days. His sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, I will go down to Sheol for my son in mourning. And his father wept for him. Now, the interesting thing about this is the phrase in verse 35, he refused to be comforted. Notice, by the way, he has a lot of daughters now, or he has more daughters than just Dina. So you have this, he's weeping, and he can't, it can't be consoled. That phrase, uh, he uh, refused to be comforted, is found in only one other passage in all of the Hebrew Bible. Genesis 30, uh, Jeremiah 31 and 15. Jeremiah 31 and 15. Now, in this case, this is in the time of Jeremiah, and it is a vision. It is prophetic, and Rachel is long dead by this point, but it's prophetic. Now, a lot of people try to do the same with the story of the dream of Joseph. She's already dead, but that's because they think everything has to be chronological in the Bible, and they have to come up with another answer. We've been demonstrating that that's not the case. So I think the story in Genesis could very well be that the original dream of the mother and father and brothers bowing down to him happened while Rachel was still living. But this, listen to this. Thus says Jehovah... A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are not. The only two references in the Bible to refusing to be comforted is one by Jacob for Joseph, Rachel's son. And once in Jeremiah where Rachel is weeping for her sons. It's a special group. Favored son of the favored wife and prophetically, many of you know this because you're part of United Israel, has to do with Joseph and his descendants. And Benjamin, by the way. Okay. Curtain closes. It opens back up. But this act interrupts the flow of the narrative. We're no longer talking about Joseph at all. We have a whole chapter. It has nothing to do with Joseph. Joseph isn't mentioned. Jacob's not mentioned. The focus is on Judah now. It seems out of place, but I'm going to tell you it's not. This could not have been placed more perfectly because it gives us backstory information that we have to know. We can't not know this. Remember, backstage, jo Joseph is being taken to Egypt. 
Now we're focused on Joseph on the stage in front of us. Joseph goes down. He meets a friend of his. We're in Genesis 38. I'm just going to work through this. Uh, we'll look when we need to at verses. But um, he, he goes down to visit. Uh, went down, it says, let's read verse 1. It came to pass at that time, Judah went down from his brethren. We assume that he leaves this this horrible story that just happened. And turned into a certain Adullamite whose name was Chira. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and went into her. So he finds this woman. She's a Canaanite named Shua. Now, all the stress that we've had before in Genesis over, don't let my baby take one of those Canaanite people. <laughs> he, he finds a Canaanite girl, Shua, and, uh, and he uh, makes babies with her. Now, here's the other thing about this. It's interesting that it's the same area. We later read in the, the book of Judges about Samson in this same area, he finds a Canaanite woman, right? So there's some overlap there, but that's beyond the scope of the class. With this Canaanite woman named Shua, he has three boys, Er, Onan, and Shelah. Er, Onan, and Shelah. And in verse 6 of chapter 38, it says that Judah takes a woman for his oldest boy named Er. Now, E-R is the way it's written in English. Er, the... Er was wicked, it says. Don't really know what he did, but he was so bad that according to the text, God killed him. So he's he's a bad boy. Uh, And then Onan, in verse 8, the dad, Judah, tells uh, the, the second son, you now take Tamar and and do the duty, as it's called of the firstborn, basically, when if, you're, if you die, if a man died biblically and he didn't have any descendants, the next brother, the brother-in-law, would take that woman and raise up a child so that the name, but the name is the dad, the original. So heir, Onan, he gets to go in, or he has to go in according to this rule, the brother-in-law, the leveret, and take Tamar and, uh, and have a baby with her, but the, the boy is going to be called heir. So he doesn't want that to happen, and he makes it to where he doesn't impregnate her, and guess what? God kills him. Now, Judah is suffering, as you can imagine. He's lost now two boys. But it's interesting, in fact, let me, let me take one side trail just to explain to you. In Genesis 38, 8, when it says, Judah said to Onan, go in unto your brother's wife and perform the duty, perform the duty of a husband's brother unto her and raise up seed to your brother. Now, that which is translated the, basically the duty of the brother-in-law or whatever you call it, uh, whatever your translation calls it, it only occurs one other place in the Bible. It, and you, you have to connect these words. So go with me to Deuteronomy 25, 5. Deuteronomy 25 
and 5. Now, this is much later than the patriarchal period, but it seems that in Deuteronomy 25, perhaps a law that's been long on the books, if you will, uh, makes it into the legislation uh, of the, the Pentateuch. Okay. 25.5 Deuteronomy, if brethren dwell together and one of them die and have no son, the wife of the dead shall not be married without unto a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to him to wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother unto her. Then it shall be that the firstborn that she bears shall succeed in the name of his brother that's dead that his name be not blotted out in Israel. You know, and then it says if you don't uh, want to take this duty upon you, there's a ritual that you have to go through and you get uh, the, the girl gets to spit in your face and, you know, it's pretty pretty bad. Now, this in Hebrew, vayabem, is only mentioned in those two places. Genesis 38.8. And Deuteronomy 25.5. Now, a lot of people take the story of Ruth and they say, oh, the story of Ruth, that's what's going on there. No, it's not. It's not. It's different. But I don't have time to go into that today. It's outside the scope of, uh, of this class. Now, Judah has lost two sons, which sets up perfectly for the drama which is coming. Why did we just all of a sudden jump over to Judah? You had to know this. Now, he's there. the more there's reason, we're going to get into this in the next class a little bit too, but I just want you to know right now Judah is reluctant, as you might imagine, to give Shelah to Tamar. He did this twice. Two boys, two of his precious sons, he gives them to Tamar, and, and they die. He's got one more, but here's what he says. Look, Tamar, honey, he's got, he's not, uh, he, he, I, I'm not giving him to you yet. He's not grown up. But he doesn't want to give it. Can you blame him? You, you might say, well, these are tragic accidents, but I mean, two in a row? All right. So Tamar disguises herself another garment story. She dresses like covers herself like she's a prostitute. And Judah goes into the prostitute. And by the way, that in and of itself, you know, people have certain standards of morality and we look at the biblical text and we read right over that. But he finds this prostitute. He said, oh, you know. So he makes this deal with her. And look at, let's go to Genesis 38. Genesis 38, <clears throat> and let's see where I want to pick up. Okay, she put uh, verse 16. This is after. So he thinks she's a prostitute. He goes into her, and he gives her a form of payment. He gives her some items that are his personally, and he says this is a pledge. By the way, there's, a, there's another transaction, there's a kid involved in this too, right? So you have to keep watching. It's like goats and garments. In fact, that'd be a good name for the class, goats and garments, but only people that listen would get it. Um, notice in verse 16, he turned unto her by the way and said, come, I pray thee, let me come in unto thee. 
for he knew not that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, what will you give me that you may come in unto me? And he said, I'll give you a kid of the goats from the flock. And she said, what, uh, will you give me a pledge till you send it? See, he's promising her a goat that he doesn't even have with him. She said, well, give me something I can hold till I get the goat. And then 18, and he said, uh, what pledge? And she said, your signet, your cord, and the staff that's in your hand. And he gave them to her, and he came in unto her, and she conceived by him. So she goes off. She takes off these garments, and uh, the story continues. It's like you're, you know what's going on because the narrator is telling us the whole story. But Judah doesn't know, right? He doesn't know that that was his daughter-in-law that he's withheld Shela from. Now, when the story unfolds and word gets back to Judah, hey, you know, Tamar is pregnant. And he says, what? She's supposed to be in mourning. Kill her. And so the, the plot, you're, as you as the reader, you know the whole story, and you're like, whoa, Judah, you better be careful here. It's about to get ugly. And, and so then we get to this. Look, look down at verse 25. <clears throat> Uh, look at verse 24. And it came to pass about three months after it was told to Judah saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has played the harlot. Moreover, behold, she's with a child by whoredom. And Judah said, bring her forth and let her be burnt. When she was brought forth, she sent to her father-in-law saying, by the man whose these are, am I with child? And she said, discern, I pray thee, whose are these, the signet, the cord, and the staff. Now, can you imagine? This is a big public display, maybe. Wow. Now, it's interesting. There's a connection here. There's one phrase used here. It's used in only one out of the verse. In Hebrew, it says, haker na, which is basically, please recognize this. Whose is this? Haker na. It occurs here. And only one other place. You know what it is? Genesis 37 2, the bloody jacket. I care not. Tell me, please. Is this, do you recognize this? Joseph's bloody coat and the items associated with this thing going on with Judah. You know, I did, by the way, I'd never noticed that until this week while I was studying. It's only those two, but it's a connection. The, the, the scribe is making these connections, and we don't even realize the beauty and artistry and how things are connected and interwoven. Now, I also want to tell you, look at verse 26, <clears throat> 38, 26. Judah acknowledged them and said, she is more righteous than I, for as much as I gave her not Shelah, my son, and he knew her again no more. And then she has twins. Now, let me ask you this. Um, who's going to raise the twins? D does he ever give her Shelah, his third son? I never thought that he did because the story doesn't tell us that. But now I think he did. And I think I can prove it from the Bible. Look with me at First Chronicles. First Chronicles, and somebody might say, well, that's a little bit more detailed than uh, it's important. 
1 Chronicles 4.21. The sons of Shelah, the son of Judah. Get ready. This is Shelah's firstborn son. What's his name? Drum roll. Er, the father of Lekah. So it appears that after all, Shelah was given by Judah to Tamar as the, the husband. He followed the rule, and Judah um, was doing his duty. He had been shamed by his, his previous condemnation of Tamar, and ultimately uh, Shelah followed his father's orders and named his firstborn son heir after the death of the firstborn, who should have been bringing forth seed in Israel. Okay, that's a little bonus. Now back to Tamar. She is in labor with twins. We have another connection. Remember the, the previous story of the twins, and Rebecca has twins, and they're fighting in her womb, and there's a hand involved. The hand of Jacob grabs the heel of uh, Esau. This story, interestingly enough, has to do with the emergence of a hand in delivery again. Now, I'm not sure how common this is. I know we have some uh, uh, people who are in the medical field. Maybe they could tell me. Uh, but, I, I mean, I've been in the delivery room for quite a few and have never seen this. But it, think about this. This is two interesting stories about the birth and a hand. Jacob's grabbing the heel on the way out. And in this story, Peretz, the, the one, he breaks forth first and they mark him, you know, so the scarlet thread, you know the story. Well, this is an interesting story, and I think it connects those two in a way. Now, so we got these two boys, Zerah and Peretz, and this story is going to play forward into biblical everything. Uh, the birth of David is going to play into this story later, as you might imagine. Okay, so now we get to chapter 39, Genesis 39, and I'm going to make up a little bit of time here, but very important that we go through these. <clears throat> we pick up in 39 as if 38's not even there. 37, Jacob's being taken into, Joseph is being taken to Egypt in slavery. 39, Guess what? Joseph was brought down to Egypt. Now, I've already pointed out the interesting discrepancy or difference or variation. Who's bringing him to Egypt at the end of 37 versus who's bringing him at the beginning of 39? But nonetheless, we're back into the story. Now, I want you to want to tell you before the curtains open back up, even though 38 seems out of place, we needed this information about Judah. We needed to know that he suffered great loss. We needed to know that two of his sons had died. We needed that information, and you'll see why. Now we get, as the curtains open up, we're in Egypt. And Joseph, once again, is dressed up. He's got a position his moral character is going to be what we really get to see in this one, but it's another garment change. Now, Joseph, as the song says, he looks like an Egyptian. He's part of the... Now, he's still considered an outsider, so at this early stage, 
But there's no doubt he's not still wearing his tattered Israeli clothes, his Hebrew clothes. He's dressed differently. He's in a position. The, he, uh, and then we meet the woman of Potiphar. This is one of the focal points that help us to discern uh, how Joseph's moral integrity is high. So she likes him. Potiphar's wife really takes uh, an interest in Joseph. He's, he's young, probably good looking. She sees him around the house. He's always there. He's the, ma- the servant of the master, but he's all, and she's, she's got the hots for him. So a couple of times she makes a move on him and he, he's able to say no. Well, this particular day, look at verse uh, 11, chapter uh, 39, verse 11. It came to pass about this time that he, Joseph, went in the house to do his work, and there was none of the men of the house there within. And she caught him by his garment. Here we go with the garments again. Saying, lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and got him. So he's like, uh, got him out. He's out. But when she sees she's got the garment, she uses a garment to deceive. Now, have we ever heard that before in Genesis? Here it is again. You you can imagine as the scribe is assembling these, he's like, let me see that source. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, this is from the same truth. This is it. How do you know? Well, it's got the garment. It's always got the garment. It's got a kid usually. uh, It checks. Put a check. It's like a template for these ancient sources. Once again, a garment is used to deceive. Brothers deceive the father with the garment. Tamar deceives Judah with the garment. Uh, it reminds me of Zechariah chapter 13, 4, which I don't have time to go into. No longer will they use a garment to deceive. What does that mean? Zechariah 13, that's another class. So we've got two women contrasted here. We have Miss Potiphar, who had the hots for Joseph, and she's willing to lie, uh, do whatever it takes because now she's scorned. She's, I mean, I don't know. I'm assuming she's probably good looking too, or she figures it doesn't matter if I'm good looking. This, you know, this young guy can entice him, but he refuses and he doesn't want to sin. He's got a high moral standard. And then you have the other, Tamar, who might be criticized by some for playing the part of a harlot, which I think is a bit rough. What she's trying to do is get what's owed to her. I mean, you know, we can be high and mighty and righteous and point a finger at what she did. Everybody lets Judah off scot-free. He went in thinking he was going into a prostitute. She wasn't. She's not a prostitute. I know some people's standards she is, but I don't think so. She, she wants children. She's had the unfortunate case of having Er, who's wicked and gets killed, and then Onan, who did what he did, and deserved to die because he wasn't fulfilled. So she's acting on the part of bringing about what has to happen. Now, we also see in this story that Joseph, despite his circumstances, rises to the top. You ever hear that saying, the cream rises to the top? You can't beat Joseph down. I mean, you can. But if he's in prison, he's going to float to the top. If he's taken captive, he's going to rise to the top. Now, he learns valuable lessons, but Joseph is highly favored. We see God working behind the scenes in the life of Joseph. 
while he's in, she, she tells her husband, this Hebrew, you brought him here and he tried to rape me. And so Joseph gets thrown into jail. And while he's there, one day he sees two Egyptian court officials who are in prison with him. And they're all downtrodden. And he says, tell me about it. Boys, tell me what's going on. And they told him about two dreams. Second set of three sets of dreams in the Joseph saga. And they tell the story, and he gives an interpretation. They're worried because no one can interpret dreams. And Joseph now knows this. He said, God knows how to interpret the dream. He doesn't take credit for it. Remember, when the boys saw him coming, they called him the dream master or the Lord of the dreams. Here comes that Lord of the dreams. Well, guess what? He's finally earned that significant title. But he did it when he gave God the credit. God knows the meaning in chapter 40 and verse 8, and he tells the men the meaning. Now, look at verse 14 of chapter 40, Genesis 40, verse 14. Have me, he, after he tells him the meaning, he says, but have me in remembrance when it will be well with you and show kindness, I pray unto thee, unto me and make mention of me to Pharaoh and bring me out of this house. He said, look, I gave you the interpretation. The other guy died just like I said. You're being restored. Please, please, look, don't forget. Cupbearer, when you go back to handling the Pharaoh's cups, don't forget me. But you know what? He did forget him. All he wanted was not to be forgotten. But look down at verse 23. Yet the chief butler... Uh, did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. It was all he had. You had one job <laughs> and couldn't do it. Between the close of this reading and the beginning, the opening scene of next week's reading, two weeks will have passed. Joseph is forgotten. Judah has paid a dear price, and Jacob refuses to be comforted. And that's where it sits as the curtains close. But each of these events have been shared with the reader so that we might be surprised and amazed at how God, behind the scenes, will use even the greatest of tragedies to bring about his ultimate plans and purposes. Don't miss next week's class. Shabbat Shalom, Shavua Tov, Happy Hanukkah to those who are celebrating. And don't forget that as the sun sets tonight, you are going into the one day in the Hebrew Bible, of which God says, from this day forward, I will bless you. Be blessed. Shabbat Shalom. Shavuot Tov.